Hello, and welcome back to the People Analytics Podcast. As always, I'm the host, Sean Boyce, CEO and founder of StaffGeek. Today, I would like to welcome to the show, Elliot Epstein, who is the head of people at Galileo. He has uh, dedicated his career to building and scaling people functions in mission-driven organizations. He has worked in people, culture, and organizational development across roles and different sectors. He lives in Manhattan with his husband, daughter, and rescue dog. Hello, Elliot. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. Doing well, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Excited to have you here. And before we kind of dive into the topic we want to talk about today, can you give our listeners a little bit more information about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I think going back to childhood, my first sort of passion that got me out of my shell, I was originally a very shy kid, was acting. And I thought it was both really fun being on stage in front of other people, but in kind of a controlled environment, like you could rehearse and know what you were supposed to do and, and know that you would be successful to a certain extent, but also getting inside of people's heads. And so that led to an interest in psychology and really understanding what motivates people and helps them be happy and succeed or fail in life. And I think as I went through college, I became less interested in sort of traditional one-on-one -on -one practice of psychology and instead in this one-to-many kind of ratio. And so after school, I decided to join the Teach for America program where I it was just totally thrown off my game in the most wonderful way. You know, I'd until that point, certainly grown up in a more kind of diverse and integrated part of the country than I think many people necessarily do, but had still lived life in, in a ivory tower for the large part. And I think this really just taught me so much about what it means to truly be present and engage with people and be humble and sincere. And I was in a number of really tough uh, schools and, and situations, but loved my students and ultimately learned so much more from them, I think, than I, than I was ever, ever able to teach them. But a lot of that really kind of resulted in this, this passion in me, both for connecting with people, uh, leading them towards measurable and meaningful goals, but also really being a resource and advocate for them. And so I abandoned plans to apply to law school after that experience and instead, somewhat on a whim, joined Teach for America's national recruitment team, which was kind of a spur of the moment career decision, but really set me on a path to become more interested in human capital and people type of functions over the next uh, decade that followed. And so started there, um, eventually got interested in not just how to draw people's interest and attention into a role and get them really excited about it, but what ultimately makes people uh, succeed or fail when they're in an organization and how you can set up structures for a person's entire kind of employee life cycle or journey within a given company to help engender their success and by extension, the company's success. So started getting really uh, passionate about learning and development, about the building of feedback-driven culture, which is I know what we're gonna talk through today, about performance management and about kind of the right ways that people can organically connect with one another, get invested in the mission and vision and values of a company, and ultimately find really kind of long-term uh, rewarding and, and meaningful careers. So that I think has guided the work that I've done over the last decade plus. Uh, it's been really rewarding. And I, you know, I think for me, the interest in a progressive approach to people and culture combined with the uh, kind of clear draw towards mission-driven work and uh, particular thinking about levers for change in society and what can really sort of be a differentiating factor that helps someone achieve kind of their full potential and, and you know, have all of the sort of things at their disposal that everyone should have, but not everyone does. And so education was my focus for a really long time um, and still is and sort of outside of work uh, endeavors because I think education can be the great equalizer. But when I met uh, the leadership team at Galileo a couple of years ago, 
and learned what they were doing in healthcare of really trying to leverage technology and human-centered design and new approaches to community-based care in service of bringing high quality and affordable healthcare to everyone who needs and deserves it and so often doesn't have it. That really struck a chord with me. And so, you know, the, the combination of progressive approaches to people and culture, as well as this really uh, compelling mission that, you know, now more than ever is relevant, certainly in the face of a pandemic, has, has kind of drawn me in and kept me really captivated in that company ever since. What always impresses me is the diversity in the background of people leaders. I feel like it's, it's such a important characteristic for the role. So thank you for providing the information about your background. Super helpful sure. to know. And uh, excited to learn more about Galileo and the things that you've done there. I'll introduce our topic first, which we want to talk about today, and that's having a feedback-driven culture. So before we kind of dive into that more specifically, I'd love to hear from you what, in your opinion, what that means, what it means, like what having a feedback-driven culture means, and a little bit more information about perhaps how you've crafted that at Galileo. Absolutely. So I think what it means to have a feedback-driven culture is intentionally and deliberately cultivating an environment where people feel empowered to speak up, share their experiences, and in particular, share with others what the nature of their experience is with that other person and how their actions or perceived intentions are either uh, positively affecting or hindering their ability to be successful. So I know that was a little convoluted. I'll basically scale it down. I think often uh, you see cultures that aren't feedback driven in which people are worried about being honest or forthcoming about the nature of their experience because there can be some sort of consequence. You know, what if this person doesn't want to work with me anymore? What if it uh, negatively hampers my, my prospects of getting to do projects or take on assignments that I've really wanted? What if my boss doesn't like me after, you know, I, I tell her that I, I had an issue with the way I was spoken to this one time or, you know, the way that my work was evaluated and, you know, that, that sours our relationship. I think all of those things can very much stand in the way. But a truly feedback-driven culture is one where people check their ego at the door, say, I am here to learn, you know, the collective power of our, uh, you know, capability and our minds harnessing, uh, you know, this, this uh, energy for the common good is far greater than they are as individuals. And we are going to work really hard to realize that. And so people intentionally seeking out feedback and proactively asking how they can be better, people proactively offering it and knowing how to offer it, which is a skill in and of itself that I'm happy to talk more about, and being in an environment that really celebrates and uh, embraces that versus one that makes it sort of stigmatized or you know the kind of thing that people shy away from because they're afraid of what the consequences might be. I feel like you've described this a few times before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's something that I, I talk about not infrequently and I'm very passionate about for sure. I can tell it really resonates. And I think that was an excellent description of it. So thank you for that. If you could, sure. thinking from the perspective of someone who wants to get there, right? You're an expert in this. You can tell you've done it many times over and you've done it successfully. What are some of the, how, does, how do other leaders put themselves in a position to be able to successfully achieve something like that if their culture isn't quite there yet? Like what are some of the, what are some of the first steps to think about towards achieving that like successfully operating, you know, feedback-driven culture? Yeah, Sean, it's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. And look, this isn't splitting the atom, right? I mean, I don't think anything I'm about to say will be so earth-shattering for those of you who are listening, but being open to talking about it openly, honestly, and with a great degree of sort of humility and 
collective, we're all in this together so that we can all be better and do better and ultimately help our customers, clients, whomever be more, more successful. That is the underlying mindset that has to be present regardless of the type of company you're at, uh, the stage and size of development. Like it, everyone really has to be uh, invested in that and it can't just be love service, it has to be sincere. Um, so I think that's the, the first thing is like this mindset of it's necessary um, not only for us to be productive and fulfilled, but for us to actually do well as a business. There's numerous research by Gallup and others that shows that companies that are feedback driven have much better financial returns, have much more engaged uh, team members who are likely to stick around for longer and contribute at a higher level, um, have a higher degree of productivity. Like there, there's all sorts of rewards for that. So I think really setting the stage and enabling that to happen has to be modeled at every level of an organization. And then I think it's talking about it. So you can't just talk about it when a situation comes up that no one's dealt with before. Sometimes I think people kind of kick the can on building a feedback-driven culture until it's too late and there's actually a situation in which it's necessary to give feedback and people don't have a roadmap as to how they'll do it. So instead of that, you have to say, let's set some intentionality here and talk about how we're going to work together and deal with different types of situations that may come up. And, you know, right now things may all be rosy and we're on the same page, but inevitably when you have a room full of people who are passionate uh, about their work and have strong convictions and who like to bring, you know, new and different points of view to the table, you will have disagreement and there will sometimes be a little bit of friction. And now that, that in and of itself can be a good thing and a force for good, but we have to talk about how we're going to deal with that in an open and honest way. And if we don't have a shared set of norms and beliefs around that, then we're never going to be able to address it. And that's going to ultimately become a very corrosive kind of uh, environment to be part of, and people will no longer feel speaking up in the way that they once might. And what ultimately happens is that a lot of good ideas or differing points of view get left on the cutting room floor, and they never even saw the light of day. So I think everyone at all levels of the organization saying it's not about you know who the who is the originator of an idea it's about judging ideas based on their merits it's about being able to speak up and have productive debate and discourse and it's about being able to learn that giving feedback productively is an art that everyone prefers it to be done in a different way that we have to sort of learn and respect one another's preferences and differences and talk about that before it's relevant and then uh you know i think once you have that level of commitment, it's still difficult to act because the theoretical is always easy to discuss than the actual situation in front of you. But it can't ever be a one, two, three jump and I'm the only one in the water. You really have to go through those growing pains of modeling it. And I think once people see that it's possible to give and receive feedback in a positive way, that performance can improve as a result and that long-term relationships are strengthened and not hurt by that, they'll sort of fall into the line. One other activity that um, I've done at several companies and that I know other, others have done as well is write what we call a user manual where people outline kind of their preferences, their quirks, their working styles, the, thing that's, that, the things that matter to them, but then uh, specifically how they like to give and receive feedback because there's sometimes this notion that you, know, you should do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And that's a good intention, but really it's do unto others as they would want you know, a situation to be handled. And you might not know that if you've just started working with people. So being very clear about what the roadmap will look like and how it sort of ties back to the larger culture of the company that you're building and the values that you, you know, claim to espouse. Excellent. A lot of great feedback to kind of unpack there. The first sure. I'll draw more attention to is I love the fact that you also, you didn't just mention 
a lot of the benefits with having a culture like that. You also talked about its impact on the business and how it can have sure. positive performance impact on everything that you're doing or why the team is working together, right? Everything that we're collectively working towards. And you're right, I've seen the same thing. A lot of that data dictates exactly as you mentioned. So that should really open up a lot of eyes who weren't necessarily looking at this just from the perspective of this is probably the right thing to do kind of regardless. There's also benefits to investing in this long-term. And I love embracing the differences, right? Those that make us different, that make us unique. There's a lot of value in that, right? And if you can bring, bringing different teams together, I've always, I've said this over and over again, I'm, I feel like I'm broken record at this point, but that's where innovation comes from because what makes us different helps us come up with creative new ideas. And those ideas ultimately lead to innovation and innovation kind of moves the needle forward. So you talked about how it could impact a business from the perspective of performance, but also the fact that, right, embracing those differences, but you have to foster an environment where they're welcomed. You can't, you have to, if people have the opportunity, have a platform to be able to speak and share those differences, they have to be, they have to feel comfortable doing that. And I think you did a great job of articulating that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. One other thing that I would just, uh, you know, call out is that Life Labs, um, which does a number of kind of cognitive science and behavioral science based workshops for growing tech companies, does a phenomenal workshop on feedback and talks about the important distinction of feedback is not just being positive or constructive, but also vague versus specific. So oftentimes, I think people leave feedback conversations, whether it's in performance reviews or in more casual settings, unfulfilled, because the feedback that they've gotten, even if it's been positive, has been very vague. There's nothing that they can glom onto and say, okay, now I know what made me effective here, and I need to charge forth and, and continue doing that and scaling up that kind of effort. So saying, oh, you were a total rock star, you crushed that, or hey, this really fell short of my expectations. That just leads to more anxiety, right? Because you don't know where you can identify as the, the source of success or failure, and it doesn't help you learn or abstract. Instead, being able to say this specific thing led you to success because of these reasons, or this specific thing held you back, and I would have preferred to see more X, Y, or Z, that gives people a, a compass or a roadmap. And while I think it's hugely important not to explain, defend, or justify when presented with constructive feedback, as I know people tend to do, myself included, you always want to be able to have that level of specificity so you don't walk away from the conversation kind of smiling and nodding politely, but actually confused about what the feedback really was or how to amplify its impact. Um, another thing that I, I really encourage folks to ask is this question of what can I do 10% better? Because as I was saying before, people often uh, feel like you know, they don't want to rock the boat or nitpick on small things. And so the feedback often can be, you know, keep up the great work, just keep doing what you're doing. And even if nothing's broken, which you know, oftentimes things do run fairly smoothly, for you to be able to say, okay, I understand that things are going well, what can I do 10% better? That actually opens up all sorts of floodgates for, well, now that you mention it, I think this could be incrementally improved. And if you have enough of those incremental improvements over time that people can set their attention and focus on, you really do start to see material transformations. That's a great framework to use to think about process improvement or doing anything better at an organization, right? Because it doesn't, I think there may often be a misconception that it has to be like this wide sweeping change in order for us to get better, but a little bit of an improvement across the board goes a really long way. So that builds a lot of momentum in the right direction. I also want to talk for a moment about something you mentioned in creating a user manual for your team members. What I find particularly interesting about this is, and you articulated it well, it's not 
treat others the way you want to be treated, it's treat them the way that they want to be treated. I remember when I had heard that for the first time that it was a real eye opener for me in thinking about it from that perspective. So I could certainly see how you know, creating a user manual for your team or your team members could really benefit the whole organization in that way. If I know more about how we can work effectively together, that's really going to help us all be more productive and happy while we're doing it, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, per that anecdote, there is something to be said for this notion that when you don't give people feedback, particularly constructive feedback, you're actually being disrespectful. I think what often holds people back, as I was saying before, not wanting to rock the boat, but this idea that it's somehow an affront to their overall level of skill or that it may poison the well and make them think that you don't generally value their work or respect what they're capable of doing. And it, I think you actually have to flip that paradigm on its head. I care about you as a colleague. I value you. I see so much potential. I want us to be as collectively successful as we can. And therefore, it would be wrong for me to hold back and not share this with you. Much in the same way that, you know, there's this statistic, I think, that 70% of people would work harder with positive reinforcement. That's something that's often forgotten. People need positive reinforcement. And I'm not saying praise the water for being wet or you know, have a situation where every single time someone does a basic thing that's required of them, it has to be lauded and celebrated. But if someone really puts a lot of focus and attention into something and, you know, either knocks the ball out of the park or doesn't, but it's clear that they've been trying, acknowledging that can also be really motivating. Absolutely. Well put. So another question I have for you is, we talked about this previously, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, especially for our audience. And that's, creating an environment and a structure to eliminate bias. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. I think that goes very well hand in hand with the topic that we're talking about thus far. So if you could, um, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about that and and what you've done as a people leader um, to make yeah, that up. Ab absolutely. Um, I think the first step is talking about it. Like bias is a thing that exists. Um, there are conscious and unconscious biases. Um, we have many conscious biases. So I know, for instance, that I don't love spicy food. And if I hear that food is spicy, I'll probably ask for them to make it less so. And sometimes they're, they're perfectly innocuous, um, but often they are not. And then the, what, what makes things even more complicated is that unconscious bias is kind of like the smog and the atmosphere that everyone is breathing in, but isn't necessarily aware of. And so a lot of what it comes down to is saying, this is something that everyone is participating in. It's not something that we're necessarily trained to talk about. In fact, in many circles, it's considered impolite or improper to discuss it. But if we really want to create a workplace where everyone can be successful, no matter their color, creed, orientation, gender identity, et cetera, you need to be able to identify these things and talk about them openly. And we need to have an environment that's equitable where everyone is positioned to do their best and that doesn't just sort of cater to one set of uh, norms or expectations. So think, being able to first kind of have that open dialogue of no one's perfect, everyone is doing work on this subject, and it, it takes a lot of humility, much in the same way that creating a feedback-driven culture does, and it takes a lot of recognition that you know human beings are conditioned by their environment, and we all have grown up in different circumstances, so we have to be really mindful and attentive of that. I think that's the first thing. Um, I don't think that people tend to be as successful that way when it's a purely kind of dogmatic format of the you know the chalk and talk. Uh, all-knowing professor type standing in front of the room and just sort of reciting all of this vast knowledge to other people. Everyone has experiences that they can draw from. And I think being able to make it as conversational and as inclusive as possible, while at the same time being respectful of everyone's experiences and you know questioning ideas, but not people and, and all of those kinds of norms, that's a, a great first step. And then I think once you've established that, 
um, it's good to sometimes do supplementary reading uh, or listen to podcasts on the subject. You know, there's at this point no excuse not to because there's so much information available. And especially in the wake of all this sort of racial unrest and deep-seated uh, inequity in our country and, and in our history that is now at the forefront of discussion, these resources are, are more available than ever before. So simply saying, oh, thanks, I'm set, you know, I don't actively participating in, in this, uh, like I, I'm not participating in this, therefore I don't need to, to look critically at my own life and, and the way that I interact with people in, in a workplace or in society broadly, like I don't, I don't view that as an acceptable answer. And I think there's increasingly consensus on that front. So there's all sorts of ways that you can Kind of nurture that. Um, you know, people have started book clubs. We did one uh, with uh, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and then you know, it's since gone on to to look at other texts. Um, it can be more informal. Uh, you know, there can be spaces like uh, lunch and learns where people unpack some of these issues in greater detail and talk about how it pertains to your particular sector or industry. Which you know, I think regardless of what your company does, there's some way that it uh, you know these issues touch. Uh, that that subject. Uh, and then I think what you really need to do is once you understand the issues, talk about their practical ways in which they can play out in an environment. So what does bias often lead to in the workplace? It leads to unfair practices with respect to hiring, with respect to promotions, and with respect to different kinds of opportunities. And what often you know leads to that is this idea that you're not judging people purely based on their merits, but rather on something that you either have in common with them, on a perception of, you know, how hard they had to work or were assisted in getting to where they've been, um, and in all sorts of other factors that, again, you might not even be aware are seeping into your mind. So I think what it really comes down to is educating everyone on what those different types of biases are, how they relate to those types of decisions that are made about people's careers and opportunities, and then having a very kind of disciplined process when those decisions are made of being empirical and consistent from one person to another. There's a lot right now on the zeitgeist about structured interviews with hiring, right? And making sure that when you interview candidate A and B, even if you have more in common with one, you're not compromising the integrity of the interview process and just saying, you know, you remind me of me, so I'm gonna pattern match and hire you instead of this other person who may be equally qualified, if not more so for the job. And I think that has to also be kind of the, the disciplined and rigorous approach that you take to those decisions about what happened to people. And part of what, happen, you know, part of what happens when you have a feedback-driven culture is that you're then able to question people and these sorts of decisions and have a healthy dialogue and debate um, without folks taking it personally and while recognizing that everyone is on, on the same page and really just wants to create an equitable environment where everyone is positioned to do well. Um, and so you don't have to worry about people uh, misinterpreting your intentions or, you know, uh, projecting some kind of underlying motive on you that, you know, may, may be in those conversations when you don't have that foundation of trust. Absolutely. You mentioned a lot of valuable resources as well, too. So that's kind of the next question I have for you. I would love sure. to call some of these out because I want to link them in the notes uh, so that others can uh, consume them as well also and go somewhere to learn more. So if you would, any resources that you would share with myself, with the audience um, explicitly, please let me know uh, so we can talk a little bit about those. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, I want to do that question proper diligence, so I might follow up with you afterwards, and then maybe you can include them in the notes from the section. But I know that there are a lot of podcasts and books. I just don't want to kind of forget anything that may be super material um, to, to this discussion. And then I think a lot of it also has to do with um, ways that you can facilitate internal dialogue. And I know that there are 
increasingly a lot of facilitators who come in for this purpose explicitly of, of talking about issues of inclusion and eliminating bias and creating a more just and equitable environment. And you know, I am by no means an expert on the subject. I've, I've done some of it over the years, but I am a big believer in really investing in that and sort of having the skin in the game of everyone participating, everyone setting aside time, everyone sort of leaving their egos in the door and, and participating well. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Will do. And I will, any resources you share with me, I'll include in the notes. And there was uh, at least two that you mentioned uh, throughout this episode as well, too, that I'll probably call more attention to. So if there's anything else you'd, you'd like to mention about them, please feel free. And that was, you mentioned uh, Life Labs workshop, and you also mentioned a book uh, about how to be an anti-racist. So perhaps those two uh, we can include as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Life Labs is a company that I think is based in New York City, that they have a strong national presence, um, and you should definitely link their website. They do all sorts of workshops. Um, How to Be an Anti-Racist is, I think, right now on the bestseller list. Um, it's by a gentleman named Ibram Kendi, who is now a professor at BU um, and leading a center there on the study of anti-racism. And it's really about his own life and about some of the steps that he has taken both up uh, productive and otherwise in his own sort of journey towards anti-racism and uh, incredibly eye-opening and informative. I don't know a single person who's read it who hasn't found it to just be really compelling and, and useful in this work. Awesome. Thank you, Elliot. And last question I have for you is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Yeah, uh, I guess anyone who geeks out on these kinds of issues of uh, feedback-driven cultures, um, hiring responsibly, uh, running human capital organizations in progressive ways, um, best way to get in touch with me is through my LinkedIn profile. Um, so feel free to just uh, send me an invitation or a message and always happy to kind of brainstorm, share resources and ideas and that kind of thing. Outstanding. Well, thank you for that, Elliot. And thank you for being here and sharing your incredible knowledge and experience with both myself and our audience. I hope it's uh, been useful hearing this uh, conversation. Again, I think no one has ever really uh, finished on this journey. It's always a work in progress. And as companies grow and scale, I think they, they can't ever take their foot off the gas or be less attentive to it. But when you start to see things click and you observe the benefits of creating and fostering a culture that is feedback driven, it, it clearly makes all the work worthwhile. Awesome. Couldn't have said it better myself. Great. Thank you so much, Sean. Thanks for listening to this episode of the People Analytics Podcast powered by StaffGeek. If you or anyone you know is a leader in human resources or talent acquisition and would be interested in being a guest on our show, please reach out to me at sean at staffgeek.com. That's sean, S-E-A-N, at staffgeek, S-T-A-F-F-G-E-E-K.com. We would love to share your valuable knowledge with our audience. At this point, we'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our show, StaffGeek. StaffGeek helps companies hire smarter by increasing retention and combating turnover, all while reducing time to hire. They do this by creating a customized behavioral assessment around your company's unique culture. Armed with your FitTech assessment, you're able to evaluate which candidates are the right fit for your company's culture. Start hiring smarter today with StaffGeek. If you'd like to learn more, reach out to StaffGeek at hello at staffgeek.com or visit them on the web at staffgeek.com.